0: And welcome to another Our Fake History throwback episode. Today, I am throwing you back to episode number 10, Did the Aztecs Think Cortez Was a God? Part 2. Last week, I re-released part 1 of this series, so hopefully you've all had a chance to listen to that one again, complete with my brand new intro at the beginning, giving you my thoughts on part one. Here's what I have to say about part two of this series. First, listening back to your old work is always a bit of a trip and, quite frankly, can be very cringy. Uh, sometimes I really don't like the way I phrased things. Sometimes I really don't like the way I paced things. Back at the beginning, I think I had this real breathless cadence to everything that kind of bothers me now, but this is the thing when you listen to your old work, it can sometimes be hard to do, right? However, there's a lot of things about this series I still really love. The story of the conquest of Mexico, I still believe, is one of the most interesting chapters in human history, and I don't say that lightly. It is just a a truly incredible, incredible moment in our past. A tragic moment, to be sure, but my gosh, this story just blows my mind every time. Listening back, I was really happy to hear that I was able to capture some of those moments. However, I was sad that I had to skate past a lot of other really cool stuff in this story. Now, recently in a Q&A episode, someone asked me which episode I'd like to revisit or maybe redo. This is one that I think about, because there's so much more to say about this. I should also let you know that back when I first released this episode, that was when I received my first piece of really critical fan mail. Now, I'm not just talking like a negative review, I'm talking a well reasoned email by someone who had listened to every single episode up to that point. She was a listener from Spain, and she took some exception with the way that I treated Cortez in this series. And I have to say, she had a point. In this episode, you'll hear that I call Cortez a creep with an agenda. Honestly, I I didn't really hide my contempt for Hernan Cortez in this series. But she made the point that I didn't really give him a chance, nor did I really explore his motivations in a deep or nuanced way. And In fact, I just sort of wrote him off as a greedy pirate. That's a reasonable critique of my approach here. I think I did do that. She was also concerned that I may have played in to another historical myth. This is the so-called Black Myth of the Spanish. What was the Black Myth of the Spanish? Well, this was a narrative that was encouraged by many of Spain's colonial rivals, and in particular, the English. This was a belief that the Spanish were particularly horrible or particularly cruel colonial masters compared to say the English, the French, or the Dutch. This meant that stories of Spanish cruelty in the new world were often exaggerated and sometimes were made up out of whole cloth. Also the other colonial powers could do the what about game. You know what I mean? Oh, sure, things are brutal here in British North America, but what about the Spanish? Do you see what they're doing just south of here? Back in 2015, when I first released this episode, this concerned listener thought that I may have been influenced by this myth. She pointed out that while in this episode I take a lot of time to put the Mexica practice of human sacrifice in its correct cultural context— I don't afford that same kindness to the Spaniards. It was a good point. It gave me some serious food for thought. In fact, I think I've been influenced by that email ever since, and since then I've tried to approach all my topics in a much more even-handed way. But, with that said, I think the actions of the Spanish in the New World, and all other colonial powers for that matter, speak for themselves. So, while I think I may have put my thumb on the scale a little bit in this episode, I don't regret being critical of colonialism in general. So, while you're listening back to today's episode, I think you should keep an ear open for my biases, Do you think I was unfair to Hernán Cortez and the Spanish more generally? Do you think I was overly sympathetic to the Mexica? Think about the moments when I chose to editorialize and why I chose to do it. Now, I don't mean to get too high school teacher on you and give you an assignment while you're listening, but uh, hey, that's how I roll. All right, I really hope you enjoy this episode. I will see you again in one week when I will have another throwback episode for you. But without further ado, episode number 10, Did the Aztecs Think Cortez Was a God? Part 2. There's a story. That two years before the conquistador Hernan Cortez landed in Mexico, the leader of the city of Texcoco, one of the most important cities in the Aztec world, saw a comet streak through the sky. This was a very bad omen. To him, this meant that his empire was doomed. In meditation, he was able to perceive more about the prophecy. The great alliance of the Mexica was fated to be destroyed by a mysterious group of outsiders. Distraught, he voyaged to the capital of Tenochtitlan, where he shared his prophecy with his king, Montezuma. The king could not accept his vision of doom and told the visiting nobleman that he had not interpreted this sign correctly, but the leader of Texcoco was adamant that this omen needed to be taken seriously. So they settled it the way all Omen-related disputes in the Mexica world were settled, with a game of one-on-one. Seriously, the will of the gods was often determined by the Mexica by playing their favorite sport, the Mesoamerican ball game called Clatchley. This game involved shooting a rubber ball through a stone hoop while hitting it with only your hips and elbows. Now, imagine seeing this. For the Mexica, it would have been like watching President Obama and the Secretary of State John Kerry shooting some hoops to settle a disagreement over foreign policy. But for these two men, this game was deadly serious, and tradition holds that King Montezuma lost the game. If we believe the source where this story is found, this was just one of a series of foreboding omens that seemed to predict the coming of the Spanish and the destruction of the Mexica Empire. But when it comes to the history of the conquest of Mexico, it's hard to know what to believe. Both the Spanish and the indigenous Mexica sources are riddled with mythology. Were any of these strange omens real, or were they invented after the fact? Were the Mexica waiting for a catastrophe? Did they really think that Cortez was actually their god Quetzalcoatl returned to destroy the world? All that and more on today's Our Fake History. Episode 10, Did the Aztecs Think Cortez Was a God? Part 2. Hello and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major and this is the podcast where we look at historical myths and try and determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. This is the second part of our two-part series on the fall of the Aztec or Mexica Empire. If you didn't hear the first episode, you may want to go back and download that now. I laid a lot of pipe in that first episode, so it might be worth your while to go back and get caught up. But, for everyone else, to recap, in the last episode, we learned that the Aztecs are more accurately called the Mexica. We dove into the mashed-up myth of Quetzalcoatl, I upset all the ancient aliens' people, And we ended with Cortez not actually burning, but still destroying the ships that had brought him to the mainland. This week, we're going to dive deeper into the story of the conquest, and we're going to try and answer that lingering question. Did the Mexica think Cortez was a god? The god Quetzalcoatl, to be exact. Now, as I hinted at in the introduction, this story is filled with unreliable narrators. All of the primary sources about the war between the Spanish and the Mexica carry profound biases. Now, that's nothing new when it comes to history. Literally every source is affected by the perspective of its author and that author's intended audience. But at times, these sources remind me of Vladimir Nabokov's infamous novel Lolita. Now, Lolita is famous for, among other things, having a notoriously unreliable narrator telling you the tale. For those of you that don't know Lolita, the whole book is written from the perspective of a man who has an indecent relationship with an underage girl. But now he's trying to spin it like it wasn't really such a terrible thing that he did. I think you all understand now why this book is controversial. But the point of the book, at least according to my first year English prof, is that the reader should not trust the narrator because he's a creep who has an agenda. That's also how many historians suggest we should approach Cortez's accounts of the conquest. It's not that he's always lying, but he's a creep who has an agenda. So all of his accounts, which exist in the form of five letters written to the king of Spain, need to be read cautiously. The other Spanish source, written by someone who was actually there during the conquest, is Bernal Diaz's The True History of the Conquest of New Spain. Bernal Diaz was one of Cortez's soldiers, and as such, it gives us a grunt's eye view of the whole experience. Diaz's account is fun, and it reads like an adventure story. I've also seen it described as spicy. But Diaz comes with his own baggage. He has bones to pick with Cortez. Like many of the rank and file, he felt ripped off by the Captain General. So he's quick to knock Cortez down a peg or two. Diaz also likes to play up the salacious details like human sacrifice. He goes into all sorts of detail about the sacrifices of the Mesoamerican people, often exaggerating or editorializing about how disgusting it all is. So even though Bernal Diaz offers us a great read, it too needs to be handled with care, especially when it comes to depictions of Mexica culture. But, by far the trickiest sources to interpret ...are those that claim to be from the perspective of the Mexica and other Aboriginal people. Many of these sources were collected by Franciscan monks a few decades after the conquest. One of the most famous of these sources is the so-called Florentine Codex, which was completed in the 1550s, 30 years after the end of the conquest. The source was created after interviews were conducted with surviving Mexica elders who were alive at the time of the coming of the Spanish. All of these interviews were conducted by young indigenous men working alongside the Franciscan monk Bernardo de Sahagún. It's in this source that the Cortez-Quetzalcoatl connection is made the most explicit. This source also contains the tales of the eight evil omens that prophesied the coming of the Spanish. The version of the myth of Quetzalcoatl that I told you in the first episode also has its roots in this Codex. The question is, can we trust the Florentine Codex? Those of us who want the indigenous perspective on the conquest are eager to give it some credence as it seems to preserve the experiences and understandings of the Mexica. There's a real desire to simply go, okay, the Aztec source says that they thought Cortez was a god. So we got it from the horse's mouth. Cortez must have been taken for a god. Well, not so fast. Despite the fact that this source seems to settle this issue, it too comes with some serious baggage. How much should we trust this source? Well, to answer that question, we need to go back to 1519 and take a closer look at the conquest itself. As we dive into this story, I'm going to call on all of our unreliable narrators to chime in from time to time. And just maybe we'll get close to something like the truth. everyone. Today's episode is being brought to us by Headspace. Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that helped you sleep better, focus better, act better, be better? Well, apparently there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. So I have explored the Headspace app. I've tried some meditation tools that they've uh, got suggested there. And honestly, I really enjoyed it. I also love the little videos and little cartoons they have peppered throughout the app as well. It's easy to use. It's very fun. And, uh, you know, meditation uh, doesn't hurt. So uh, if you think this might be good for you, give it a try. You deserve to feel happier and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com/fake. That's headspace.com/fake for a free 1-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered anywhere right now. Head to headspace.com/fake today. When we last left Hernan Cortez, he had just founded a new town, Villarica de la Cruz. This new town not only acted as a home base, but it also gave him a tricky legal argument for why he was technically no longer under the control of Diego Velazquez, the governor of Cuba, who, as we remember, he totally hated. Cortez had cemented an alliance with the Totonac people and had famously scuttled his fleet so there were no boats home. From here, Cortez started his march towards the Mexica capital of Tenochtitlan. Now, at risk of making light of a very serious historical episode, there's something very Wizard of Oz about this phase of the conquest. Cortes obviously plays the role of Dorothy, following the yellow brick road to the fabled Emerald City, a.k.a. Tenochtitlan, where he hopes to meet the wizard, Montezuma. Along the way, he also manages to pick up a number of helpful allies. Melinche, the brain, the Totonax, the heart, and Cortez's most tenacious allies, the Tlaxcalans. And they are definitely the Courage. The Tlaxcalans were one of the groups neighboring the Mexica who had managed through warfare to stay independent of their empire. After years of nearly constant fighting, The Tlaxcalans and the Mexica had worked out a strange arrangement where instead of actually going to war, they would compete in a ritual known as the Flower Wars. These were like a combination of the Olympics and gladiatorial combat. Large mock battles where men would be wounded but not killed would be performed for entertainment in one of the host cities. The victorious warriors would be given awards and would gain glory. The losing side would agree to have a number of their warriors sacrificed to the gods. It kept the casualties low, but it meant that the peace between the Tlaxcalans and the Mexica was uneasy at best. When the Spanish entered Tlaxcalan territory, the local armies came out in force to confront Cortes and his band of adventurers. The battle that ensued was one of the hardest fought in the entire conquest. Bernal Diaz remembered the Tlaxcalans as being some of the bravest and most skilled fighters he had ever faced in the field. But despite their ferocity, their weapons were no match for Spanish steel. Bernal Diaz remembers that the Spanish swords were able to shatter the obsidian weapons used by the Tlaxcalans. But the decisive element in the battle was the Spanish cavalry, as the Tlaxcalans had no tactics for defending against men on horseback. Although the Spanish won a decisive victory, they suffered more casualties in this confrontation than any other since they'd landed in Mexico. The chastened Tlaxcalans, impressed with the fighting skill of the Spanish and learning that they had a common enemy in the Mexica, decided to ally themselves with Cortes. Indeed, for the rest of the conquest, the Tlaxcalans would play a key role in Cortes' army and would provide tens of thousands of fighting men for his cause the Tlaxcalans would become the backbone of his invasion force, which has led some historians to dub them the, quote, indigenous conquistadors. This is important because it flies in the face of another persistent myth about the conquest, that a small group of conquistadors was able to single-handedly bring down a vast empire. On the contrary, Cortez's army would mostly consist of aboriginal fighters, many of whom were Tlaxcalan in many ways, the conquest of Mexico could be read as a native civil war triggered by the destabling effect of first contact. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Cortez now had an impressive force of Tlaxcalan warriors in tow as he pressed on to Tenochtitlan. On their way, they decided to pass through the holy city of Cholula, a move that the Tlaxcalans warned against as the Choluans were staunch allies of the Mexica. Cortez ignored these warnings and instead entered the city where he was hosted and given gifts by the seemingly gracious Cholulans. Now, this stop in Cholula is of particular interest to our investigation because this just wasn't any holy city. This was the holy city of Quetzalcoatl, and by all accounts, it was incredibly impressive. Both Cortez and Bernal Díaz describe it as the most beautiful city they had ever seen. The Central Pyramid Temple was the tallest building that Díaz had ever encountered by that point in his life. Both men also described many other large towers that dotted the cityscape. These towers may have been the holy towers of Quetzalcoatl, that were said to be carved with large holes so the wind could whistle through them in melodic ways. They were basically giant tower-sized flutes whose whistling was understood to be the voice of the god of the wind and music, our old buddy, Quetzalcoatl. Now, it's important to note that the people of Cholula did not seem to think that Cortez was their city's patron deity. They hosted him like any other visiting dignitary, giving him a comfortable house to stay in and providing him with a nice meal. Gracious, to be sure, but not exactly godlike treatment. And if that doesn't seem like a godlike arrangement, this next bit really makes it clear what the Cholulans thought about Cortez. You see, upon entering the city, Malinche, you remember her, Cortez's Nahuatl speaking translator lady friend, well, she began making friends with some of the locals. The story goes that she was invited into the home of a local woman who warmed up to the congenial young lady. The woman said that Malinche should abandon the Spanish and hide in her house because the Cholulans were planning to kill Cortez and his men while they slept. Malinche played it like she was going to take the woman up on her offer and said that she needed to just go back to her home and get some of her things before she made a break from her former Spanish lover. But as soon as she was out of the house, she ran back to where Cortes was staying and told him the entire plan. Enraged, Cortez mustered his troops and called for a meeting in the central square, right at the foot of the Pyramid Temple. He gathered the local Cholulan nobility and questioned them about the conspiracy uncovered by Malinche. We are told that the nobility told Cortez that they had been ordered by Montezuma to resist the Spanish but they were planning to disobey their king and meant Cortes no harm. Cortes responded to this by seizing a number of high-ranking Cholulans and killing the rest of those assembled. He then turned his army and his Tlaxcalan allies loose on the city to pillage, murder, and burn as they saw fit. The holy city of Quetzalcoatl was ravaged, and anywhere between 3,000 and 30,000 people were killed, depending on which source you believe. The massacre at Cholula would become one of the most notorious events in the conquest, and would earn Cortes the moniker The Butcher of Cholula. This incident is also notable for us historical mythbusters, because it seems clear that this event would have made it obvious to the Mexica that Cortes was not Quetzalcoatl. Even if the Mexica thought it was possible that this stranger from the east might be an incarnation of their god, his conduct at Cholula must have given them at least a moment of pause. I mean, he desecrated the temple of Quetzalcoatl, killed the priests of Quetzalcoatl, and massacred the leaders of Quetzalcoatl's holy city. It seems pretty improbable that after that, anyone could have thought that this was the second coming of any Mexica deity, let alone the patron of the city of Cholula. If anything, this massacre sent one message loud and clear to the Mexica. The Spanish were dangerous and needed to be handled with care. Cortez and his men pressed on to Tenochtitlan, and it seems as though word of the massacre at Cholula had preceded them. You see, the Mexica welcomed Cortez and his allies into the capital, and the reasons behind that choice have been speculated at ever since. Of course, there are many that have put forward that this is proof that Montezuma thought Cortez was the god Quetzalcoatl, and therefore he was welcoming him like a god. But there are other explanations. Some historians believe that the Mexica were hoping to get a better look at Spanish weaponry in hopes of potentially using it themselves. Others have speculated that Montezuma wanted to avoid another massacre, and he thought that the sheer impressiveness of the city and the opulence of his personal wealth might humble the Spanish and convince them to agree to a reasonable treaty. <laughs> And indeed, Tenochtitlan was impressive. The city was built on an island in the middle of Lake Texcoco. Imagine a combination of Renaissance Venice and ancient Egypt. The city could only be accessed through three long causeways. These were thin, man-made earthen bridges that were only about three or four meters in width. They also included various drawbridges that could be raised for defense. All other traffic going into the city was by canoe. The canoes could travel all around the city through an interconnected series of canals. Paddling down these canals, you might see beautiful floating gardens filled with fruit and nice smelling flowers. The city was filled with massive architectural wonders, multiple pyramid temples, Palaces, botanical gardens, a zoo, stadiums where sports were played, barber shops, restaurants, and the largest open air marketplace in the New World. Cortes estimated that it was the size of the largest Spanish cities of the period, Seville and Cordoba, but historians have speculated that it was in fact much larger. The population has been estimated between 200,000 and 300,000 people, which would have made it one of the largest cities in the world at the time by population. Cortes would note that the architectural details of the temples were so impressive that, quote, no human tongue was able to describe them, end quote. Bernal Diaz would say this of entering Tenochtitlan, quote, When we saw all those cities and villages built in the water and other great towns on dry land and that straight and level causeway leading to Mexico, we were astounded. These great towns and temples and buildings rising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision from the tale of Amadis. Indeed, some of our soldiers asked whether it was not all a dream. It is not surprising, therefore, that I should write this in vain. It was all so wonderful that I do not know how to describe the first glimpse of things never heard of, or seen, or dreamed of before. End quote. The entrance of the Spanish into Tenochtitlan is definitely one of those moments where I wish I had a time machine so I could just go back and watch. Every single person involved was just completely gobsmacked. Neither the Spanish nor the Mexica, many of whom were watching the Spanish progression from their canoes, could believe what they were seeing. There really aren't too many moments in history like this. After he entered the city, Cortez and his retinue were formally greeted and at long last were giving a meeting with Montezuma himself. We're told that Montezuma was a tall, good-looking man of roughly 40. He wore a magnificent cloak and the traditional crown of quetzal feathers. He had a pierced lip adorned with a small hummingbird lip ring. We're also told he wore gold-soled sandals with leopard-skin straps. Now, Montezuma's first conversation with Cortez has been one of the most analyzed interactions in world history, and is another key piece of the puzzle when trying to determine whether or not the great king thought he was in the presence of a god. The Florentine Codex, that Mexica oral account edited by Franciscan monks we mentioned earlier, preserves a speech that Montezuma apparently gave to Cortes upon his arrival. He apparently said, quote, Our lord, you are weary. The journey has tired you. But now you have arrived on the earth. You have come to your city, Mexico. You have come here to sit on your throne, to sit under its canopy. The kings who have gone before, your representatives, guarded it and preserved it for your coming. The kings ruled for you here in the city of Mexico. The people were protected by their swords and sheltered by their shields. Do the kings know the destiny for those they left behind, their posterity? If only they are watching, if only they can see what I see. No, it is not a dream. I am not walking in my sleep. I am not seeing you in my dreams. I have seen you at last. I have met you face to face. I was in agony for five days, for ten days, with my eyes fixed on the region of mystery. And now you have come out of the clouds and mists to sit on your throne again. This was foretold by the kings who governed your city, and now it has taken place. You have come back to us. You have come down from the sky. Rest now and take possession of your royal houses. Welcome to your land, my lords. Quote. Now, taken at face value, it would seem like Montezuma really thought he was in the presence of a god. He calls Cortes our lord. He says that the Conquistador is returned from the sky. He even seems to suggest that the kings of Tenochtitlan were only keeping his throne warm for him as they awaited his arrival. But many have argued that this speech cannot be understood literally. Historians writing more recently have pointed out that this speech employs a high Nahuatl rhetorical style common in Nahuatl poetry. And as such, should only be understood figuratively. But there's also good reason to believe that this speech never happened at all. And if it did, it certainly did not contain any elements of Cortez's divinity, or any suggestion that Montezuma was handing over the Mexica Empire. In her excellent 2003 article, Burying the White Gods, historian Camilla Townsend argues quite convincingly that Montezuma certainly did not think Cortes was Quetzalcoatl or any other god. And any account that suggests that the king simply gifted the empire to Cortes is preposterous. She points out that not even Cortes himself reported that Montezuma took him for a god. And that's something you'd think a man like Cortez would mention. Even more importantly, she does a good job of explaining why the Florentine Codex, a source that apparently preserves the Mexica side of the story, cannot be trusted. She argues that the Nahuatl speakers who gathered the oral accounts upon which the Codex was based were the sons of the former priests of the Mexica Empire. It was the job of the priests to both see the future and prevent disaster, something that they were completely unable to do when it came to the Spanish conquest. The Codex tells the story in a way that suggests that the priests had seen it all coming. Remember those omens? And they couldn't be to blame because Montezuma had thought that Cortez was Quetzalcoatl. All of this is then edited by the Franciscan priests who actively try to make the Mexica seem more sympathetic by portraying them as pious, gracious, humble, and undeserving victims of Spanish cruelty. Camilla Townsend also points out that it is in the pages of the Florentine Codex that we get the first recorded mashup of the myth of Quetzalcoatl and the legendary king of the Toltecs, Topiltsin, that we discussed in episode number one. This has led some to speculate that either these Mexica historians or their Franciscan editors, or both, cobbled together the new Quetzalcoatl story. Now, why would they do this? Well, one, it gives the conquest a feeling of messianic inevitability, something that would have felt good to both the Spanish, who were trying to justify their presence in the New World, and, ironically, the Mexica, who were trying to comprehend their defeat. Two, it makes the Mexica priests look less culpable from a Mexica perspective, because they had been planning this for years. And finally, it transforms Quetzalcoatl into a Jesus-like figure, as they also added in fun details, like, he didn't like human sacrifice. This way, the Franciscans could argue that the conquered Mexica deserved better treatment from their new Spanish overlords. Oddly enough, this doctored history may have been meant to help the conquered Mexica in the short term, but in a twist of historical irony, it would end up enshrining one of the most destructive myths about the conquest. Montezuma's speech is just part and parcel of this greater narrative being constructed in the Florentine Codex. And according to Camilla Townsend, that means it simply cannot be trusted. Just like everything else in this story, the final few chapters of the conquest of Mexico are seriously up for debate. Cortez's version of events is that after a week in Tenochtitlan, he gets word from the coast that a group of Mexica have attacked the Totonacs and some of his men that are stationed at Veracruz. He uses this as a pretense to clap Montezuma in chains and keep him under house arrest while ostensibly ruling through him. During this five-month period, it's reported that the two men strike up a strange friendship. Apparently, they hang out. Like, every day. They would play board games and go out and watch the ball game and have nice meals and apparently go on pleasure sails in brigatines that Cortez had specially constructed on Lake Texcoco. But again, I turn to historian Camilla Townsend, who reminds us that this version of events is highly unlikely. And I'm inclined to agree. Cortez's version of events is so weird and, and hard to follow. How did he manage to arrest Montezuma? He says that he just surrounded him with armed men and that was that. But that makes no sense given the earlier descriptions of Montezuma's retinue. It's more likely that this arrest didn't happen until much later. And in this five-month period, he may have very well chummed around with the king, but his claims that he was ruling through him should be met with a lot of skepticism. The turning point seems to have come in April of 1520, five months after his arrival in Tenochtitlan. Cortes was forced to leave the city with most of his men to fight a very different enemy altogether, another Spaniard. As I mentioned in the last episode, Cortes's actions in the New World were technically treasonous. He had not been given any permission to do the things he was doing by the governor of Cuba, Diego Velazquez. Well, word of Cortez's shenanigans had gotten back to old Velazquez, and now the governor was sending a small army under the command of a man named Narvarez to bring Cortez to heel. So now the success of Cortez's adventure was contingent on him not only conquering the Mexica, but also fighting off a force sent by the governor of Cuba. When Cortez was gone from Tenochtitlan, an event would occur that would completely alter the nature of the Spanish conquest. You see, when Cortes rode off to confront Navarez, he left behind a small contingent of Spaniards he called, quote, his least reliable soldiers. They were led by a man named Pedro de Alvarado. Cortez's departure also happened to coincide with the beginning of one of the most important festivals in the Mexica calendar, Toxcatl. During this festival, dozens of people would be sacrificed to the gods, including the most important sacrificial victim of them all, the Ixiplatili. This person was an exceptionally good-looking teenage boy who had spent the past year living like a king and taking flute lessons from the priests. He was seen as the living embodiment of the god Tezcatlipoca. When the time was right, he would take hallucinogenic mushrooms, give a far-out flute concert at the base of the pyramid, and then ascend the pyramid entirely alone, smashing his conch-shell flute on the stairs as he went up. When he reached the top, his heart would be torn from his chest by the high priest and offered to the gods. This offering was seen as the only way to commence the rainy season and ensure a good harvest. I'm lingering on these details, not only because they're kind of cool, but they also help give some context for the Mesoamerican practice of human sacrifice. The Spanish were horrified by these practices and write about them with palpable disgust. And as a modern reader, that's understandable. It's hard to be an apologist for human sacrifice. But we need to remember that these sacrifices were not done for fun or for sport or as some gnarly form of revenge against their enemies. These were sacred religious rites that were understood as being essential for the continuance of the existence of the earth. If they stopped the human sacrifices, the Mexica believed the rains wouldn't fall, the crops wouldn't grow, and even the sun would not rise it's also important to point out that the Spanish were not really opposed to killing people. For the Spanish, killing was justified if it happened in the context of war, or to mete out punishment, or if someone was trying to deny you some treasure, or if you were trying to ensure the religious purity of your country through an inquisition. (laughs) So when you consider that, the conquistadors' beefs with human sacrifice seem a little hypocritical. It's hard for the Butcher of Cholula to play the morality card. And speaking of atrocities, Cortez's man in charge of Tenochtitlan, Pedro de Alvarado, was about to be the author of his own. On one night of the festival, all the Mexica nobles in the city gathered in a courtyard called the Patio of the Gods for a particularly important ritual. They were all dressed in their finest clothes and most impressive jewelry and they began performing a series of sacred dances. One of the dances, the Dance of the Serpent, involved all of the men undulating together in their elaborate feathered cloaks to create a hypnotic effect. It made them appear like one giant snake. But right in the midst of this sacred dance, Pedro de Alvarado had his soldiers block all of the exits from the courtyard and proceeded to have his men massacre the assembled nobles. He unleashed the guns, crossbows, and Spanish swords on the unarmed nobility of Tenochtitlan, killing everyone but a few lucky people who managed to climb over the walls and escape. Why did Alvarado do these things? He later claimed that he had gotten wind of a conspiracy that the nobles were plotting to kill the Spanish once the festival was over, so he simply orchestrated a preemptive strike. The Mexica sources claim that he was watching the ritual and had become overcome with greed and resentment watching the aristocrats dance, and he acted out of pure malice. Even the most charitable sources seem to admit that this plan was completely unprovoked, and if the Mexica didn't want to kill the Spanish before, they definitely did now. As word spread of the massacre, an angry mob quickly formed on the streets and chased Alvarado back to the palace where the Spanish had been quartered since they arrived in Tenochtitlan. Apparently the only thing that kept them alive was the forced intervention of Montezuma. Alvarado apparently forced the king, on pain of death, to appear on the balcony of the palace and order the crowd to disperse. This saved them for the night, but the angry mob would be back the next day calling for the expulsion of the Spanish. When Cortes returned to Tenochtitlan, after having defeated Narvarez and robbing him of his ships, supplies, and much of his fighting force, he found the city in open revolt. Cortes and his men somehow managed to get back to the palace, but from that point on, the palace was essentially under siege by the mob, which was now being led by Montezuma's cousin, the newly chosen king of the Mexica, Cuitlahuac. The pretenses of friendship, or at least tolerance, were over. The Mexica wanted the Spanish gone, or dead. They were now in open war. The first order of business for Cortes was for him to get himself and his men out of the city so they could regroup, muster their allies, and return in force. But they were trapped. Between the Spanish and the causeways out of the city, there were thousands of angry Mexica. Their first tactic was to have Montezuma once again head out on the balcony and try to call for peace. But this time, it really didn't work. The crowd, who no longer recognized him as their king, pelted him with stones. The Spanish sources tell us that the once great king was actually stoned to death as he impotently tried to calm his people. However, the Mexica sources differ and claim that although he was pelted with junk from the street, he wasn't killed. They claim that the Spanish unceremoniously did away with Montezuma after it was clear that he would no longer be of any use. Either way, the once mighty king of Tenochtitlan would end his life in disgrace. The Spanish would spend the next few months attempting a number of failed escapes until they were eventually successful on the night of July 10, 1520. Since the bridges along the narrow causeways had been destroyed to keep them from escaping the city, the Spanish had to build their own portable bridge that they would carry on their backs to bridge the gaps between the causeways. They also carried with them the immense treasure that they had found while in the palace. The so-called treasure of oxycodile was essentially all the finest tribute payments that had been collected by Montezuma's father during his reign. Bernal Diaz describes this treasure as having Scrooge McDuck levels of gold, which is certainly an exaggeration, but we can safely assume that they had a buttload of shiny things. The Spanish tried to be stealthy, but their cover was blown by the time they made it to the first break in the causeway, where they had to use their homemade bridge. The alarm was sounded, and before long they were surrounded by Mexica warriors, some even fighting them from canoes that they paddled up to the causeway. What ensued was a bloody battle that would cost dozens of lives on either side and would see the great treasure of oxycodile sink to the bottom of Lake Texcoco. Nevertheless, Cortes and a hard core of conquistadors managed to fight their way out of the city and to safety on the other side of the lake. This night would become known as La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sorrows. The Mexica pursued Cortes, and they would fight yet another battle where the Spanish would just barely avoid complete destruction and the always-lucky Cortes would manage to escape with his life. There are some historians who speculate that if the Mexica had pursued the retreating Spanish more tenaciously, they could have ended the conquest right then and there. But instead, they headed back to Tenochtitlan to celebrate the expulsion of the Spanish and sacrifice their captives to the god of war. Indeed, after Noche Triste and the ensuing battle, which became known as the Battle of Otumba, Spanish fortunes were at a low ebb. But from that point on, Cortez's amazing good luck seems to have saved the day for the Spanish. First of all, Cortez survives, which is crazy, considering that he sustained some pretty intense wounds during all the fighting, including multiple nearly deadly blows to his head. Secondly, the ships just keep turning up from Spain, bringing him more men, more horses, more guns, and more everything. The demoralized conquistadors received some reinforcements right when they needed it most. And finally, the biological weapons that the Spanish had unwittingly brought along with them started to do their work smallpox hit Mexico right at this moment, killing untold thousands of Mexica and other native people. Every day after the Nocha Triste, the Spanish grew stronger and the Mexica grew weaker. Smallpox even managed to claim the new king of the Mexica, so yet another new leader, a man named Cuauhtemoc, had to be elevated to the position of king But despite being weakened by a devastating plague and set off balance by a turnover in leadership, the Mexica were still able to put up an amazing fight in defense of their empire. The final battle for Tenochtitlan was no easily won thing. Before making his move on the capital, Cortes would add to his force of allied native people. The Tlaxcalans remained his staunchest and most numerous allies, providing more than 10,000 fighting men. But Cortez was able to win over other groups to his cause, some through diplomacy and others through force. By the time he was ready to fight, he had a force made up of at least seven major aboriginal groups, including the Texcocans, the Denzians of the city of Texcoco, a former member of the Mexica Triple Alliance. Cortes and his now massive allied army would use the city of Texcoco as a base of operations for what would ultimately be an eight-month siege of Tenochtitlan. To take the island city, Cortes would have to pull out all the stops. He would have his master shipbuilder oversee the construction of 13 brigantines These are Spanish-style sailing ships that he had loaded with cannons so he could control the lake and not be flanked by canoes the way he had when he had tried to escape the city. In the early stages of the Battle of Tenochtitlan, this small fleet would often go up against hundreds of men in canoes, and it's regarded as the biggest inland naval encounter up to that period in history. But even after Cortes gained control of the lake, he still needed to fight his way into the city along the long causeways. As you can imagine, the fighting was fierce, and the Spanish and allied progress was incremental to say the least. The Mexica surrendered ground grudgingly and sold their lives dearly in the defense of their city. The process would take months. When Cortes finally managed to break into the city proper... He was now engaged in some intense urban warfare, where every street became a new battleground. And so, he made the fateful decision to destroy the city as he passed through it, burning and wrecking as he went, all to avoid a potential ambush. The Mexica only surrendered after the last of their defenders were surrounded in the market, and the once great city now lay in ruins around them. After eight months and thousands dead, the destroyed city was now in the hands of the Spanish, and the first phase of the conquest of the New World was complete. The destruction of Tenochtitlan was a catastrophe that heralded both the end of the Mexica Empire, but also the beginning of a new era in world history. The loss of the city was a tragedy that even Cortes himself seemed to lament, but that still didn't stop him from burning the city down to ensure his victory. Perhaps the most pathetic thing about the whole event was that the destruction of the city didn't even win him the great treasure he had been fantasizing about ever since he arrived in Mexico. In the aftermath of the siege, the last king of the Mexica, Cuauhtémoc, was brought before Cortes. The conquistador had Malinche question him, and he demanded to know where the rest of the gold was. The king stoically replied that there was no gold. The Spanish had lost most of it back on Noche Triste, and the rest, cuauhtemoc had ordered to be collected, loaded into boats, and then sunk to the bottom of the lake. When cuauhtemoc saw that victory was impossible for his people, he chose to destroy all the remaining wealth just so it wouldn't fall into the hands of Cortez. So after everything he had done, Cortez was left standing on a pile of rubble that was once the most beautiful city in the Americas, empty-handed, surrounded by soldiers that he now had no way of paying. Today's episode of Our Fake History is being brought to you by JustWorks. Hey, small business leaders, are you looking for an easier way to onboard and manage remote employees? Are you doing it all at your company? Well, Just Works makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. With JustWorks, employees can onboard themselves in minutes with simple software that makes a great first impression. You can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and handle payroll and PTO requests, all on one platform. Plus, it comes with JustWorks' expert 24-7 support for you and your team. You can also get help setting up sick leave policies and administering harassment and discrimination prevention trainings that comply with state and local requirements. So find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to JustWorks.com. That's JustWorks.com for more info. Today's episode is also being brought to you by Progressive. I think we could all use a few more dollars in the bank. If you had a little bit more savings, what would you buy? I don't know. Weighted blanket? Smart speaker? Something else cool? Well, Progressive wants to make sure you're getting what you want by helping you save money on car insurance. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save over $700 on average, and customers can qualify for an average of six discounts when they sign up. Discounts like having multiple vehicles on your policy. Progressive offers outstanding coverage and award-winning claim service. Day or night, they have customer support 24-7, 365 days a year. When you need them most, they are at their best. A little off your rate each month goes a long way. Get a quote today at Progressive.com and see why four out of five new auto customers recommend Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National annual average insurance savings by new customers were surveyed in 2020. Potential savings will vary. Discounts vary and are not available in all states and situations. The story of the conquest of the Mexica is incredible and I couldn't resist telling it. But we still haven't gotten closure on our initial question. Did the Mexica think Cortez was the god Quetzalcoatl? Well, let's bring together everything we've learned. First and foremost, we know that the story of Quetzalcoatl was actually a mythical mashup that included a previous tradition about the plumed serpent god, and then a later tradition about a mythical Toltec king. That mashup definitely happened after the conquest and is first found in the Florentine Codex. So there doesn't seem to be any pre-conquest traditions about a god returning to conquer the Mexica Empire. Secondly, in Cortez's letters to the king of Spain, he does not describe that he was taken for a god which is pretty interesting considering all of the other potential fabrications in his letters. Thirdly, the native people of Mesoamerica never seem to treat the Spanish in a godlike way. They either make formal treaties with the Spanish, or they treat them as violent enemies. In other words, they treat them like people, not gods. And finally, Cortes orchestrated a massacre in Cholula, the holy city of Quetzalcoatl. It seems unlikely that anyone would have thought he was the god Quetzalcoatl after that. Ironically, the sources that give the most credence to the myth that Cortes was taken for a god are those compiled by the Mexica themselves. But as historian Camilla Townsend points out, Sources like the Florentine Codex have their own biases. Although the Florentine Codex preserves the oral recollections of Mexica people, it's also an apology for the priestly caste of Mexica society. Townsend argues that the omens and the references to Cortez being mistaken for Quetzalcoatl were a way to exonerate the Mexica priests for failing the people. Furthermore, the Franciscan monks who edited these sources were also keen to play up the apocalyptic and Jesus-like imagery in the text as it fit in with their own religious ideology. So, I think we can safely say that Cortes was not mistaken for Quetzalcoatl or any other god. But it is fascinating to me that European chauvinism had very little to do with the persistence of this particular myth— On the contrary, it was the altruistic desire for historians to want to preserve the voice of indigenous people in the historical record that led to both the creation and the perpetuation of this myth. The voice of native people is so often excluded from narratives about first contact and the history of the Americas in general, so many people are thirsty for it. As such, sources like the Florentine Codex and other documents that preserve the native perspective are needed. But in this particular case, a strange and ultimately harmful myth about Mexica people got baked into their own account of the conquest. Ironically, the people most hurt by this myth were also key in keeping it alive. Okay. Okay. That's all for this week. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, This one was a bit longer than usual and I'm glad that you stuck with it. We're going to be back in two weeks time with a very special announcement about some exciting things that are coming up in the next month. So check your feed in two weeks. I can't wait to tell you what's going on. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It might have to do with ninjas. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at rfakehistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can follow along on Twitter at rfakehistory, or you can join the Facebook group at facebook slash rfakehistory. You can also go to the website, rfakehistory.com, where you can donate to the show. And I have to give another big thank you to everyone who has made a donation. Thanks again. Another great way to support the show is to go to iTunes where you can rate and review the podcast. And I have to say, guys, some of those comments have been so nice. You guys are the best. It's super sweet. I absolutely love it. And thanks to everyone that's been talking to me, reaching out to me, um, sending me emails, uh, sending me stuff on Twitter. I have been taking some of your suggestions for future episodes. So thanks to everyone that's been suggesting those. Uh, you've really given me some inspiration for the future. So uh, thanks a lot. The coolest thing about this whole process has been building this community with you guys out there. Uh, And uh, I really love that. So I'm excited to tell you what's coming up in the future of the podcast. We got some big plans, guys. So please check your feed in two weeks when we'll get more into that. As always, the theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. You can check out Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. All the other music that you heard on the show is written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major, and remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Hey, this is Adam Carolla. Let me tell you about my podcast. We do it uh, every single day, so you can subscribe, and there'll always be a fresh one waiting for you. It's about two hours of uh, topics, topical topics, and news, and guests, and uh, comedians, and of course, my own vitriolic take on uh, just about everything that's going on in the world, plus um, we get a lot of really interesting, uh, notable people who come in. We'll get politicians. We'll get the taste makers. We'll get stand-ups. We'll get uh, authors. We'll get uh, pundits. We'll get uh, what I say. Well, I think about covers it all. Celebrities as well, and uh, we'll do some really interesting interviews with them. You can get the Adam Carolla Show wherever you download your podcast.